Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm your host, John Drury, and I'm a spiritual uh, engagement coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. We hope this uh, podcast will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. Our guest this week is Sarah Dirk. Sarah is professor of Bible with a specialization in Old Testament and Old Testament poetry at Houghton College, uh, where she's also the division chair of religion there. So uh, she's a busy person and an excellent scholar and preacher and teacher of the word and leader in uh, my church, my denomination. So uh, it's such a joy to have Sarah on. Sarah's an old friend and a present day friend and colleague, and she's an excellent guest when she gets to come around. I haven't had her on for a bit, so I'm super happy to have her on again, especially in her wheelhouse of biblical poetry. So speaking of that, our uh, text for the week is Psalm 63, Psalm 63. So if you want to turn there, if you're sitting down, uh, and if you're uh, listening along while you're driving or walking or doing dishes, don't worry, we'll read the text multiple times during the course of our study together today. If you're enjoying the show today, uh, be sure to hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice so you can pass this show on to others via social media or a private message uh, so that they may enjoy it as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to find out ways that you can support what we're doing here. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. Awesome. Well, do you want to read the text from any translation of your choosing? Yes, I would love to. So I'll read from the NIV today. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness or desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary. And beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, and your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we uh, join with this psalm in committing to sing your praises, even and especially when we are in the wilderness, 
So Lord, all those who are listening in, wherever they're at, uh, whatever wilderness they face, may our conversation today be a means of grace by which their lips are loosened to praise your name. Father, may we not hide our pain with praise, but uh, let our praise emerge from within, from within the pain, from within the fear of enemies. And may we also praise you for the ways that you protect us from that which ails us. So Lord, teach us how to praise your name well today as we study this text. Open up the mind and heart of Sarah and myself uh, that we may be uh, faithful and fruitful interpreters of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, Sarah, what uh, what strikes you in this passage, Psalm 63? Oh, there are so many beautiful and treasured images used in this psalm. So, I mean, I think, of course, you start with the the longing and the that feeling of thirst and being parched and that's such an evocative image and this is one of the psalms where that that superscription at the beginning a psalm of david when he was in the desert of judah is so evocative of the frame of mind that the worshiper is invited into or that this expresses for the worshiper so that that desert land parched and dry land that's just really draws me in and then i always love the image of the shadow of the wings of God, which the psalmists use all over the place. And then I also am struck. I'm all, I'm often struck uh, this way when a psalm ends with leaving the wicked in the hands of God for judgment. That's not the way I want, like pastorally, that's not how I want a psalm to end there on that note. <laughs> but that's where this one does. And so I think these are some things that that catch my attention in the beginning. Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, I agree that that the superscription at the top is most relevant for the the vibe, right? Yeah. Think of these more as <laughs> think of these more as vibey than, yes. than strictly historical. Having yeah. said that, there are two different wilderness experiences in yeah. David's life. Yeah. I was curious if so, so the first that comes to mind is is when he's fleeing from Saul, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I do believe he, and I maybe I'm remembering my details wrong, so please correct me if so. But he also passes through the wilderness of of Judah when he um, evacuates from yes. Jerusalem, correct? Yes, yes absolutely, and, yeah. And I wonder, do you have a sense? I mean, we can't get in the mind of the composers of the the superscription at the top, but are there any clues into the text of how this is 10, which of those wilderness events, the tradition has tended to associate this with? I mean, there may, maybe that's the beauty of it is it could go either way, but. Yeah. I mean, I think most, most scholars associate this with the early part of David's career when he is, you know, he's one of the leaders of Saul's army, but then he gets too good at his job and Saul becomes jealous. And so he has to go on the run. And so we're talking here in 1 Samuel 22 and 23. And the tabernacle imagery that we see in this psalm, you know, thinking about the sanctuary and beholding the power and glory, 
the satisfaction from a, a feast and, and the word there in the Hebrew is fat, which is usually comes up in the context of, of sacrifice. So this language about worship in the sanctuary is more prevalent in that first sojourn in the wilderness specifically because one of the things that Saul does in trying to take vengeance against David is to massacre the priests in the priestly town of Nob. And that's where this that's where this happens. He's in the wilderness of Judah. He seeks guidance from God from the priest Abiathar and then Saul finds out about that and kills 80 some priests. <laughs> And then David, you know, runs away again or runs deeper into the wilderness. And so there's priestly connection to the first Samuel 22, 23 narrative that isn't quite as prevalent in the second time when David runs away from his own throne, you know, on the run from his son after the mess with Amnon and Absalom in their fight over what was done to Tamar. So, yeah, most scholars tend to associate it with that first sojourn in the wilderness. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, especially language of sanctuary or tent in verse two. Mm-hmm. Um, really does link really well with. Yeah, the does it? Am I remember? Am I getting two stories mixed up? Is that where he picks up the sword of uh, Goliath? Wasn't yes. it there at yes. the? Yes, that's sanctuary? right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, he's given the sword of Goliath, and then this is also where then he returns to this Philistine town of. Kayla wins the battle there. And then Saul tries to send his forces to enclose David and besiege him within this walled town. But David gets wind of it and runs away first before Saul can get there. Yeah. So then that like introduces some, some interesting twists if we locate it there. So on the front end, I mean, it really clicks to have, especially this language of dryness that fits more of a, an exile out in the desert. Whereas like when he, evacuates from Jerusalem. He's got servants and cattle and, you know yes, what I mean? Like he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. he's not in, <laughs> right. he's right, in danger. Right. Don't get me wrong. Yes, but, yeah. And there but is in, another Psalm. I can't remember the number, but there is a Psalm that says when David fled yes, from Absalom. So from there Absalom, is another yeah. Psalm associated mm-hmm. with that. I can't remember which mm-hmm. one, but. Mm-hmm. So this one though is, I think the desert imagery, I mean, that at this earlier episode of Sojourn is when David is in and out of caves. It's when he's hiding in the stronghold of Engedi. eventually ends up in, in Engedi. So it's really, he's not taking refuge in a town that is willing to defend him. He is on the run with a growing force. I think at the beginning of this season, he has 400. And by the time we get to chapter 23, there are 600. Saul is coming against him with 3,000, but he keeps running from the battle. He, he's determined not to engage the forces of Saul. <laughs> and it's, it's in, I think, in chapter 24, where he, where he encounters Saul in the cave when Saul goes in to relieve himself. And, and David refuses to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So I just, I think, I mean, I don't normally make so much of the... Uh, yeah, me neither. I was surprised. <laughs> yeah, but this one Here is just works so, really well. Yeah, it's so evocative. It is so it just paints such a vivid picture of the feeling of being the target of someone's unrelenting attack for unjustified means, <laughs> unjustified reasons. So 
I think that's just really helpful here. And it, yeah, it, it, it helps make sense then of those last couple of verses. And it makes it one of those, and I don't want to rush to this too quickly, but I mean, this is a text set aside for Lent, the third Sunday of Lent, and it's not an accident that it's selected as a wilderness psalm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is one, you know, you can make too much of the David as a type of Christ to use an old fashioned term. Mm-hmm. But this is one of those places where that is actually very illuminating of both the David yeah. story and the Christ yeah. story <laughs> to be relentlessly pursued for yeah. something that you did not do. Huh? Yeah. Sounds familiar. <laughs> it uh, does. <laughs> and to be the true King, but to not be in fact inaugurated mm-hmm. as such. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly And right, to be yeah. pursued by the earthly forces. Mm-hmm. So you know, that, that final bit then, but the king will rejoice in God. Mm-hmm. All who swear by him will revel. This might be a place where it, because I'm sure in later centuries as this psalm was sung, this would have been associated with the whoever the current king is, the current successor of mm-hmm. David. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that takes on a, a very curious ambiguity. <laughs> In, in David's own time, yeah, yeah, although fits his own ambiguity in terms of I will not touch the Lord's anointed, while at the same time he is gathering a force against him. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but the king will one day, or you almost you, you can you can almost hear him say, "But this king will rejoice." You know, when I am king, I will rejoice. Yeah, <laughs> without saying it straight out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in contrast to the current king. <laughs> Well, and the current king, Saul, does in fact, his blood is shed by the sword mm-hmm. uh, in his yeah. final demise, does That's come right. by way of a sword. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, boy, it, like you say, very evocative. It it could very well be that this is a psalm that was composed, and as it made its way into, I know you know this, but for our listeners, as yeah. it made its way into the canon, somebody noticed the very things we're noticing yes. and said, wow, and yeah. put this superscription on them, because David's psalm doesn't mean written by David. It can be about oh, David, to David, in right. honor of David, yes. in the in the tradition of David. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so, although I can hear these words on his lips, especially mm-hmm. the whole way through, including those night watches, which really matter when you're out in the desert, man. They really do. They really do. Yeah. Well, that's great. Let's take a quick break and come back and keep yeah. digging in more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text I'm here with my guest, Sarah Dirk. Uh, no stranger to the show and certainly no stranger to the Psalms. So, mm-hmm. so glad to have her here. Um, we're looking at Psalm 63. I'll go ahead and read it again just to get it in our ears. This is from Robert Alter's uh, translation. Oh, beautiful. So, yeah, I'm waiting for a guest who who hates Alter and, the, and I'll get their <laughs> reason. Usually they're like, yay! Or if they oh, haven't yeah. heard, or if they haven't heard Alter, I read yeah. it and they say, wow! I know. <laughs> here it goes. So Psalm 63, a David Psalm, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. God, my God, for you I search. My throat thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a land waste and parched with no water. So in the sanctum I beheld you, seeing your strength and your glory. For your kindness is better than life. My lips praise you. Thus I bless you where I live. 
In your name I lift up my palms. As with the ripest repast, my being is sated. And with the lips of glad song, my mouth declares praise. Yes, I recalled you on my couch. In the night watches, I dwelled upon you. For you were a help to me. And in your wings shadow, I uttered glad song. My being clings to you, for your right hand has sustained me. But they, for disaster, have sought my life. May they plunge to the depths of the earth. May their blood be shed by the sword. May they be served up to the foxes. But the king will rejoice in God, and all who swear by him will revel. For the mouth of the liars is muzzled. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so let's dig in a little bit into a couple key verses here. Right out of the gates, verse 1 mm-hmm. slash 2 in the Hebrew. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So anything interesting there that we should point out to our listeners, especially for those of them who don't know the original language as well as you do? Uh, is there anything you'd like to to highlight that would just be be helpful to know about? Yeah, so it's so interesting because at first glance, we might assume that verse one is intended to be read as a simile, a metaphor for thirst, for longing, for yearning. I love that word that Alter chose there. But what is very blatantly missing in the Hebrew is the cough of comparison, the like or as. So it does not say, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you, as in a dry and parched land where there is no water. This is, it's so interesting to me because I thirst for you. It's not like uh, the opening of, say, Psalm 42, like a deer longs for water, so my soul thirsts for you. This is, I, so in a dry and parched land where there is no water, I long not for water, but for you, (laughs) my God. And that is, I think this is such a hyperbolic, such an extreme expression of the longing for God. This is not just a metaphor. This is a longing that overtakes even the physical. It exceeds even the physical urge in an extreme situation. And it seems in that sense, it, it almost seems mystical. Like this is... A, this is language that would fit with the desert fathers, right? <laughs> but it's, you're ringing my bell, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then the shift is, is almost immediately in verse two into I long I long for you because I have seen you in the sanctuary. So this is not some theoretical desire. Um, I you know oh I wish worship were that much more emotive. No, this is because of my previous experience with you, God, in the sanctuary. I long for that even when I am in the wilderness and what, and I need water, <laughs> but I'm longing for you. And, and that really gives me pause because probably that sort of longing and desire, sometimes we talk about it as though it's something we have to drum up within ourselves. But the act of worship, actually, I mean, I, I hope that our listeners have had this experience where you're 
in worship with other believers and you're just overtaken by the sweet union of worship, union between the congregation and God, and you're swept up into that. And and that's what this evokes for me. Yeah. And another twist, I guess I'd want to put on that is affirming that Sarah, Mm -hmm. then also then turn on his head and say, could it be also that it's in the liturgy in the work of the people? Yes. Which is what liturgy means in, in our work together in worship However, I feel in that mm-hmm. something's happening there mm-hmm. that is at the center. Yes. And it's often when we're deprived of that, then we realize how much we long for it, yes. you know? And, yeah. Yeah. and it's ironic because that experience then gets us to sometimes make the mistaken conclusion what r- the real action is in my prayer closet alone right. in the wilderness. <laughs> right. right? Which right. is half true in the sense that mm-hmm. there is that rhythm of solitude and mm-hmm. community, but often it's because we're absorbed in community all the time that that solitude becomes so necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah. I mean, how many pastors do you know who like used to be extroverts, but the work <laughs> is so people intensive that that underfunctioning introvert side of them needs to be accessed mm-hmm. just because of the nature of the work, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then vice versa. When you're in, instead of self-imposed solitude of Mm -hmm. that we need in our work, especially as pastors. Absolutely. Whereas when we have involuntary solitude, right? Where we're just when we're cut off, man, we long to just hear scriptures read. We long to hear songs sung. Right. We long to be in the temple. Obviously, God's everywhere. (laughs) But man, it's really good to be in the temple. That's where the yeah, action is, right? That's right, yeah. And that's yeah. what I sense a, maybe a little bit of here uh, yes. in terms of how it can speak to us now. Yes, and I, I I think there's been, I've had moments of this more in the last couple of years than I could have guessed it would be moving to me. Those moments when we're finally back in the sanctuary together after being, at, you know, having church right. online for so long. And then we're fine, and just that, that well of joy that we experience in worship through the liturgy, through the singing, and having been kept in the wilderness and unable to access the sanctuary. I mean, there's there's a, a recognition here of the embodiment of worship, the, the physical space that actually does bring us, you know, facilitate those connections with God in different ways than when we are on our bed. So yes, there's public and private in this psalm. There's the the sanctuary worship, there's the private meditation, there's the wilderness experience, which the wilderness is in the psalm, keeping the psalmist from the sanctuary, but also it's really hard to have private meditation <laughs> when you're on the run, if that's the background of the psalm, you know. So I just think this this psalm sort of taps into the realities of worship and devotion in multiple contexts. And it actually reflects that rhythm of the corporate body and, and the private encounter. It speaks to me of, well, what is Wesley's term? The um, holy tempers, <laughs> ordering of desire, proper ordering of desire. You know, that this, this is really passionate seeking for God that I... I just so appreciate how the psalm locates this, not in my expectation going into worship, but in the past faithfulness of God. And this psalm, I mean, we can get into this in the final section, but I think this psalm displays that that beautiful movement from past to present to future. So um, 
we can talk about that a little bit later, but I just love how that verse one really sets us up for, to, it, it invites us into the longing. Yeah. And interestingly, I mean, you mentioned past, present, future, and we often list them that way because that's the chronological ordering. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but if but we it's were not to put, the ordering of the psalm. <laughs> the ordering of the psalm, right, is present to past yes. to future. Yeah. And I, I, I often like to take note of that. It's also very relevant in the epistles in the New Testament. Yes. We'll often make those. And it's like there's benefits to each structure like because mm-hmm. accents are placed differently depending on where you structure that. This is just an aside. And this is probably – this is going to be irritating for some of my regular listeners – but hopefully a blessing to some new listeners that will come by way of uh, uh, being fans of Sarah who hear it for the first time Sarah, but it's just a little hobby horse. The, the word nefesh translated mm-hmm. soul often it's, it appears, I believe three times in this Psalm mm-hmm. and it's another example where definitely one likely two, and maybe all three work just as good, if not better when translated concretely as throat um, yes. And, and, and I've been on this like hobby horse again, regular listeners have heard this before. Maybe you just put it on two times speed for a second here, but, um, that we say things like heart yeah. with a straight face, knowing that that's a quote metaphor, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, face means presence we, or, or one's attitude towards you. Uh, arm means strength. We know these, we're totally comfortable with these metaphors, but we yes. get so lost with throat. And then we stick this really loaded, philosophically loaded word soul yes. in there. Soul. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love throat. I mean, it's liter. it's actually how Alter chooses to, to yes. translate the first sentence, which that one's just obvious. My throat thirsts for you. That's like literally the place where thirst goes. <laughs> yes, yes, that yes. one's kind of obvious. Uh-huh. But the interesting thing is the second one also kind of works because it's sitting right next to lips. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did it mm-hmm. go? It's uh, in verse uh, five. Yeah. So with the with the ripest of repast, my my throat is satisfied, right? He's talking about food, which also goes through the throat. So you yes. get water through the throat in verse yes. one, you yes. get food yes. through the, the fat, yep. uh, through the, and then the next line, lips of glad song, my mouth declares praise, right? So mm-hmm. the lips of praise and the throat of, of eating, I feel like, I don't think that imagery, I don't think this is a case of just like, especially since it's poetry, like, mm-hmm. And these are placed in parallel to each other. I don't think this yes. is a, oh, this is just another meaning of the word. He means no, being. No, it's not accidental soul. at all. It's got to yeah. be throat. The last one's a little trickier. Where was that one? Uh, do, 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 do. Well, it doesn't matter that much. But, uh, well, now I want to find it. All right, hold on. <laughs> um, but those who seek my life, verse 9, those who sought my life, well, they're probably not seeking my throat. Mm-hmm. Although even there it's relevant because it's the life breath that goes through the throat. Well, the, the um, throat yeah. And I mean, let's not overlook the proximity of the throat to the neck, which is Ooh. where you would be. Deha- I mean, you the would throat. decapitate the king. Yes. Ooh, yeah. So then maybe verse eight, instead of, instead of translating nefesh as solar life, you could translate debeka, the, the verb mm-hmm. as like those who want to slit my throat. Yes. <laughs> like yes. you could, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be just as plausible in a kind mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. dynamic translation. And there's an emphasis throughout the psalm on 
if you want to put it this way, the, the produce of the lips. I mean, the mouths of liars is contrasted with those who swear by God, the rejoicing, the lips praising, the singing. I mean, this is, is this a very, so, so full of verbal imagery. You know, vocalization is so critical to this psalm. And I think that therefore throat could be a really useful translation there. Yeah, I mean, it's playful and it would take some training of ears to get used to hearing it. But we say these other things with a straight face and don't even notice it. Yes. And, I, and I'm on this like rampage of like, maybe a generation <laughs> from now, we'll all just hear throat and hear it. And, and for anyone who has heartburn issues like I do, I mean, like the notion of lips and mouth, both mm-hmm. and then throat and yeah. then heart and how they're yeah. all connected and like yeah. the way things come up from the heart up mm-hmm. through the throat, right? Mm-hmm. Out of the heart, yeah. the mouth speaks. Right. Well, what are, what's between those? The throat, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So yeah. I'm just like, this is my new word for soul. Throat. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. I do. I think that's wonderful. Well, thanks for endorsing it, Sarah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, especially when soul is not understood as something bifurcated from the mind and the... Yeah. If soul had didn't body, have the baggage, you know. I wouldn't... Yeah care yeah. so much, but, and it, and I get, ter- I get irritated by sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, like, well, the Hebrew notion of the soul was different. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess, sure. But it might be just more helpful to just not use the word, right? Almost it's the problem isn't a different answer to the same question. It's a different question is being yeah. asked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the philosophical question of what constitutes the non-physical aspect of the human it's just like a water off a dust back to an ancient Hebrew. They don't even know what that question is asking. Yeah. Um. And I don't think <laughs> my particular take on Nefesh in the Hebrew is, is not that it's intended to be the non-embodied, but it's the whole being. It's it's the, the whole self. Although whole being is not, it's kind of clunky translation in a lot of places. So yeah, I, th- I think reverting to the physical place where whole being is located <laughs> in, in Hebrew understanding is actually more helpful there. Yeah. In some some instances, including this one. So, yeah. Well, thanks for going down that little, uh, excursus with me. Uh, this was the best example of that, that I've seen in a while. (laughs) Yeah. So do you want to, do you want to, before we run out of time in our second segment here, and then we'll come back and explore some sermon starters. Did you want to say anything about maybe verse six, or do you want to talk about the imprecations at the end? We could, I don't have time for both, but maybe the other will jump in. Maybe, maybe the other can be woven into our last segment. So which one do you want to talk about right now? Sure. Just in passing, I want to mention in verse seven, I sing in the shadow of your wings. This is an interesting phrase because most of the time when a psalmist talks about being in the shadow of the wings of Yahweh, it is for rest or refuge. This goes way beyond that into active rejoicing. Ah, totally unique use of the imagery. I'm not sure it's unique, but it's rare. And I haven't done a word study to find out if that. I like rare. Rare is good. Because then you don't even have to, then you don't even have to test it. (laughs) So I just love that. So we can just leave that there. I mean, there's not a lot more to say about that, except to say that shadow of your wings in ancient Near Eastern imagery, the picture that we have there is a mother bird protecting her chicks under her wings. So um, just a beautiful, beautiful image. Okay, then I do, I want to go to the imprecations in verses 9 and 10 um, in English. And these are, 
these are maybe actually less harsh because they could be read as sort of predictive rather than calling down the curse of God upon one's enemies. But nonetheless, they are not a warm, fuzzy way to end a psalm. So verses 9, 10, and 11, inviting God to judge one's enemies. And I think uh, these are actually some drastic imagery um, to be given over to the sword. You know, that's fairly common way of describing the judgment of your enemies, but to become food for jackals or foxes, these animals that exist on the periphery of human civilization, they are animals that are usually used as symbols for chaos and destruction. And what this means is that the enemy is being denied a burial. And so in the understanding of the world that the Hebrew poet inhabits, you know, you have the heavens, the earth, and the underworld. And if you are not buried, then you are condemned, your shade is condemned to wander with no peace, no rest. So not only are they saying like, oh, we hope for some really undignified end to your physical body, but this is a condemning <laughs> them to an eternity of wandering in the way that ancients understood the afterlife in Israel. So that's really harsh. <laughs> and and what I want to say about that is that sometimes even we are so uncomfortable with that to the point that there will be pastors who want to read this psalm on Sunday and they will want to stop the reading of the psalm. They want to end it at verse eight. And these verses of imprecation actually are something that I feel like our people need to be taught how to encounter. When it is done properly, when it's understood and taught properly, this is precisely where our desire for God's justice and salvation should be located. We should locate these, God, will you save me and take care of the people trying to destroy me? And then leave it in God's hands instead of believing that we need to enact God's vengeance on our enemies ourselves. And the Psalms of imprecation and these passages of imprecation within other Psalms teach us how to do that well. I think sometimes we as Christians, of course, we are shaped by Christ's ethic of turn the other cheek. And we think, well, doesn't this go directly against that? But absolutely not. What it does is is remind us that even on our worst day, God wants to hear from us and that we are directing this anger, this desire for vengeance at the one being it is safe to express it to. <laughs> that we actually shouldn't be saying to our enemy, like if this were in second person, you will be destroyed. You are going to go to the depths of the earth. You are going to be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. Yeah. Then we're in Matthew five territory, then, right? Whoever yes, says to your brother, yes. Raka, right, right? Yes, yes, yes. But this is saying, no, actually God does care about the persecution of his children and we'll deal with it. And we are content to leave it in God's hands. Yeah. To refuse to pray in the impregnation of the Psalms is to implicitly deny that God is a God of justice. Mm -hmm. And the fact is you got to put that angrier somewhere. So what are the other options? Well, I stuff it inside and then it lashes out on the innocent, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
mad at your boss. So you kick your dog as it were, yeah. <laughs> or it lashes out on the person who is deserving of it, but I am not the one who has the authority to do it. And I, and wrestle with the pig and mm-hmm. both get muddy, but the pig, yeah. likes it, right? <laughs> right, right. So then you just get caught up in the cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Mm-hmm. This is what Jesus was preaching against. Yes. And yeah. so then where else do you put it? And the place to put it is, uh, is in prayer, right? Prayer yeah. is the proper place to put yes. our anger, our wrath and our righteous mm-hmm. indignation. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm in full agreement. And in this particular instance, this is a case where to double back and come full circle, this is a place where having a narrative sense of where this Psalm, whenever it was composed, the story it's become to be associated with in the canon. Mm -hmm. And then in the canon of Christianity, uh, of the Christian tradition of also linking it up with Christ. Heading to the cross. Exactly. So this is a way of the cross sermon. And then to have this be the thing I want to pray and even pray. And then instead of erasing that, adding to that mm-hmm. prayers, like what prayers that we've learned from Jesus that fulfill yeah. the old Testament rather than erase it, yeah. they fulfill mm-hmm. the old Testament. So you add two lines, you add yeah. not my will, but thine be done. Yes. And you yeah. add Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing, right? That's mm-hmm. right. That's an ad. That's saying this is unjust, right. but Lord, I want to give the benefit of the doubt that they don't that's see. Right. They think they think this is justice. Yes. And most people are the heroes of their own story. Most right. people think they're executing <laughs> justice on them. I know, yeah. <laughs> um, and that yeah. desire that God would not hold this against them, mm-hmm. even though they deserve it. Yep. After releasing the anger, yeah. right? Yeah. After yeah. begging that the cup is taken. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know how, how that strikes you, but as a, a fulfillment of the of the covenant rather than as an erasing and a, and a replacing with yes. lines yes. from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's also important to recognize that this is not the equivalent of cursing someone into hell. That the Hebraic, uh, yeah. way, the Hebraic way of thinking about the afterlife in a psalm like this, like this is a perfect example of this, the afterlife is almost morally neutral. I mean, the underworld is gloomy. It's not a pleasant place to be. It is. It does represent being cut off from your beloved family, but everybody goes there, whether you're wicked or righteous. And so only the exceptional people like Elijah are taken up into the heavens. And it's not until later in Israel's history that an understanding of heaven and hell as and their association with reward for the righteous and punishment for the wicked develops. So when David says destroying, he just means they will stop living. When he says go down to the depths of the earth, he just means they're going to enter into their eternal sleep. In other words, the damage will be ended. (laughs) The damage they can inflict will be brought to an end. This is not cursing someone to eternal punishment. And I think that's interesting because maybe that relieves some of our Christian anxiety about asking God to judge our enemies. The psalmist here does not have an understanding of eternal torment. Lord, <laughs> Lord, Lord God, judge them in this life. Make the world that's, right. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think combining that with 
the sense of who this is directed to, as well as the recognition that this is an expression of mm-hmm. a desire, not a instruction yeah. of what. That's right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So it it may be a little over the top. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean? And over the we, top's okay. Like that's yeah, good poetry. Our, that's right. We give our poets permission to exceed the bounds right. of propriety and dignity, right? Like Bingo. we, in fact, we hope that they will express for us. Yes. Thanks be to God. Yes. <laughs> the most, the most extreme versions of our experience. That's their role. That's their job on our behalf, you know? And so I think the recognition that all biblical poetry trades in hyperbole for the sake of the message, not, and I think sometimes Modern audiences hear the word hyperbole and they think exaggeration equals deceitfulness or, or over emotional or, you know, any number of pejorative things. But actually, when we remember that good poetry ignites our imagination, engages our emotions, it gets under the barrier of our rationality, that, that's how it works on us. That's how it does its job. And if that's the case, then maybe we should ask the question, why is it that 40% of the Old Testament is in poetic form? Maybe God has some work he would like to do in sanctifying our imagination. And (laughs) uh, just through the very fact of the genre or of the form. Oh, that's so good. I love it. I love it. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and uh, explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Sarah Dirk, and we're looking at Psalm 63. As regular listeners know, this Lent, I've been throwing in a little curveball and uh, chanting a few of these psalms. So I'll go ahead and take a stab at Psalm 63. I love the psalms. You know, I pray the psalms every day, and I, I do, in fact, chant them. And I find that, especially with things like the imprecations we were talking about. There's something different when I sing them. You experience something different. It's like you talk about the the bypassing all the rational analysis, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, here we go. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Eagerly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a barren, dry land where there is no water. Therefore I have gazed upon you in your holy place, that I may behold your power and your glory. For your loving kindness is better than life itself. My lips shall give you praise. So will I bless you as long as I live. And lift up my hands in your name. My soul is content as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my helper. And under the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul clings to you, 
Your right hand holds me fast. May those who seek my life to destroy it go down into the depths of the earth. Let them fall upon the edge of the sword and let them be food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will be glad. For the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. Amen. So that's Psalm 63. So, Sarah, if you were called upon to preach or teach or lead others in prayer using this psalm, uh, what might be your angle, your approach, your focus of energy and angle? (laughs) Yeah, I think I would try to follow the landscape of the psalm itself. So inviting the congregation to walk with me into the wilderness to start with our longing. What are we longing for? And then to recall the ways we have seen God together in the sanctuary. And I would try to make that as localized as possible, (laughs) as particular to the congregation as I could uh, in ways that would be helpful to them. Then invite them to think about how God is our help. And how we encounter and recall and meditate on that help when we are on our own in the isolation of the night. So we're kind of moving, you know, there's a parallel here between the wilderness and and the couch in the middle of the night, but they're not exactly the same. And then invite them to think about who they might be harboring these kinds of thoughts about in verses 9, 10, and 11, and doing some pastoral exhortation around how to bring our enemies to God and and leave them in God's hands with a determination. I think, I think this Psalm is so beautiful because there is the determination on the part of the poet. I will praise you. I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied. And and so there's an opportunity here to remind our congregations that, yes, worship is something we contribute to, we participate in. It sometimes brings us out of ourselves, but also beyond the sanctuary, we have some, some will to exert <laughs> in terms of how we decide we will praise God with singing lips when we're in the wilderness, when we're on the bed at night, when we're facing an enemy, when we're under the shadow of his wings. Faith is not just something that happens to us. It is something we nurture within ourselves in partnership with God as we deliberate on God's faithfulness. So I think I would follow the landscape of this psalm in terms of tenses. I mean, we mentioned earlier past faithfulness leads to present longing and future determination, but actually this psalm shakes that up a bit. You start in the in the present with the longing, and then you're reminded of why 
this God is worth longing for. And then you determine to continue the worship and the longing lifelong. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's funny. There's like I feel two different movements. Mm-hmm. The the movements of tenses and then the movements of place. So it's time mm-hmm. and it's place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as an organizing principle for developing a sermon, and I can tell you're like me in the way you write sermons. You work on the body <laughs> and then you figure out how the heck to yeah. start it and end it, you know. Some of our preacher friends kind of have the have the big idea yep. where we want to get them. Yep. Um and I don't mind it. I think they're all valid however you get there, but and there was the spatial one. Mm-hmm. Where you've got the wilderness, the sanctuary, the bed or the couch, yeah. and the final sequence, which doesn't have a single location, mm-hmm. which is interesting, actually. Yeah. yeah. If anything, it's the, the the closest thing to a location. It's because it's not you. It's not where you are. Yeah. That last bit. The last yeah. bit's where they are, and I want them yeah. to go to the depths of the earth. <laughs> so that's so it's kind of like wilderness sanctuary. <laughs> bed, mm-hmm. grave, which yeah. in Lenten season kind of works actually. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it is kind of deeper and deeper in, you know, the wilderness, mm-hmm. yep. closer in sanctuary than bed. Then, mm-hmm. um, and you could play with those images as a way of kind of exploring it a little bit. And, but then there is the temporal and those, those do kind of loosely kind of map on. So the wilderness I'm in now, the sanctuary I recall and then it's that bed that I'm in now, you know, as I'm thinking yeah. back, you know, yeah. Yeah. to how you've been faithful and mm-hmm. it's make, causing me to say, God, prove yourself again. Yes. Absolutely. Bring justice for me. Bring justice for you. But then with, with praise as the, the overall pressure. So if we, yeah. we're talking about the, the structure of a sermon, but then there's the kind of through line is yeah. the praise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do we praise in the pain? You know, how do we worship in the wilderness? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are we glad when filled with, with grief? I know I'm doing a bunch of alliterations here, but that's yeah, a pre- yeah. that's a preacher's uh, <laughs> preacher trick. Preacher trick. Uh, right, right. And maybe the most challenging of all, how do we how do we conceive of ourselves as praising even when we are committing our enemies into God's hands? <laughs> That's exactly where my mind went is how do we think yeah. of that as an act of praise? Yes. Hmm. Well, because because we recognize that God is at one and the same time, the one who can quell our enemies and the one with the wisdom to know how to do that justly. So it's it's the power and justice and God's commitment to God's children that makes us confident that God will address our enemies. I mean, I think it's, I was thinking about this a little bit earlier. It's probably not for nothing that churches in privileged contexts are those readers who have the hardest time understanding imprecation. When, Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> when you yeah, suffer, when, if if Jesus called to to turn the other cheek Yes. Or to pray for your enemies sounds like it matches the obvious way of being uh-huh. a nice person. Then uh-huh. you don't get what these are at. No, you, you have right. to want to kill somebody to understand. Know. <laughs> you know, you want to you want to have you want to be tapped into that the rage of the underclass to yes. get it right. Yes. And yeah, uh, yeah. I'm and so I'm, with you, Sarah. I'm so with you. There's yes. something 
you know, I think the tendency in American evangelicalism has been to spiritualize the concept of enemies or politicize uh, or theorize the concept of enemies. But there are huge swaths of the church universal for whom this is not metaphor, you know? And, and so if nothing else, pray this psalm in solidarity <laughs> with those who need God to rescue them from actual enemies who are literally trying to destroy them. Yes, yes. No, that's good. This is a time for that at the very least. And maybe not just at the very least, but that yeah. – that, to 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 move toward that or from that solidarity would be good for all of us. Yes. Um yeah. even those who are more attuned to the mm. enemies that we have to be reminded that we're not alone. Wow. Man, that's really good, Sarah. I really like interpreting the Bible with you. Very challenging. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, you're the one who said don't don't give up and stop at 8. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's good. It's like force the issue, you know, say, I'm going to yeah. have to talk about this. I would say yeah. this, if you're not going to address the imprecation at the end, then go ahead and leave it off. Don't just do it and then not say anything about it. Let me make clear. That's not me saying it's a good idea to leave it off. That's <laughs> me saying the opposite, like yes. force yourself to have yeah. to deal with it. Even if yeah. only in brief, if it's not the main idea. Yes. Um, because it's a teaching opportunity. There is something in verse eight that can be really helpful here. And that is the verse eight, I think, gives us the posture for entering into the imprecation. Okay. Say more about it, It's like uh, we, we do this well only when we are clinging to God and we are, when we are okay. being held by God, God's right hand. Right. So it's not my own sense of justice and righteousness that gives me the impulse to bring down God's judgment. It is, it's like I am clinging to God even as I say. In other words, I'm putting myself in the same hands that I'm leaving my enemies in, right? His right hand upholds me. And that's a statement of faith, but it's also a recognition of my own fragility. And therefore, I am equally vulnerable to God's potential judgment. <laughs> and it's only from that posture that this is ever appropriate. This is not a move that we should ever take unless we are willing to submit to God's judgment ourselves. And, and that's really what I think Lent, of course, is, think, is inviting us into. But often we think of that in, in only uh, an internal sense that, God should judge my my thoughts, my feelings, and everybody else is his business. But here, like, no, we actually get to say, God, help me with this jerk over here. <laughs> but you don't do that without knowing that if you're going to cling to God, you also are in God's hand. Wow, that's really good. And I mean, yeah, it's not my right hand clinging to my sword, oh. to use the image of the next yeah. line, yeah. Um, or two lines down. Right. But it's my throat clinging to you. Yes. <laughs> which is, that's the one that doesn't work at first glance of the, right. it's actually four. I said three, but there's actually four uses of nefesh. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden now, a throat clinging. Well, that does make me think of praise again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so I'm directed to you mm -hmm. and I'm sustained by your right hand. I'm under your shadow. 
am inside your wings and now handing them over to you who wish to plunge me. Uh, may they be plunged. But not my will, but thine be done. Yeah. But I have a good hunch your will is to make the world righteous. Yes, so right. f- so set these people straight, Lord. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if it turns out I'm the one off, that means that's going to come on me too. Yes. And yes, I'm in that yes. proper posture, ready to be corrected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. Man, this is really good. Yeah. I, really, I love it. I want to preach on this mm-hmm. psalm, but I'll. Be sure to pray it first. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thanks so much. Thanks, Sarah, for the time you yeah. gave today. Thank it's been wonderful. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without y'all. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all our listeners who support the show, especially those who support the show financially. Uh, if you'd like to become one of our patron saints, you can go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways to support the show there. There's different levels and all that jazz. So Uh, standard Patreon stuff. So uh, yeah, check that out if you would. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.